Good morning, Redemption Church. It's good to see you guys. My name is Jim Mullins. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I'm the pastor of uh, cultural engagement and theological education, which is basically just a fancy pants way of saying that I oversee classes and a few other projects and things like that. Uh, we are a multi-congregational church, and our focus is that we rally around the idea that all of life is all for Jesus. And we're going to be talking about that this morning. I have the opportunity to uh, speak to you and to teach this morning because, as you know, uh, Ricardo's the chaplain for the ASU football team, and so he was, uh, you know, he was over there enjoying that that nice win yesterday. So, uh, good way to end the season, and it's a good way to start the new year with our boss happy. So. Um, and uh, just to give a, a couple of announcements, actually one announcement really, we're going to be starting classes again pretty soon. We took December off, and one of the first classes we're going to do is a class on stewardship, and it's going to be a class that's on holistic stewardship. Uh, a lot of times when we come into January, we're concerned, we're making goals and resolutions, things you know, resolutions that we're going to break in February. Uh, reading plans where we get past the book of Genesis and then set it aside. But, you know, a lot of us are uh, curious about how to set goals and to do it in a gospel-centered, non-idolatrous way. Also, some we're often making goals about health and losing weight. And often, too, we're also trying to figure out how we can save money because we spent all of our money during Christmas. So uh, this stewardship class is going to be a four-week class, and it's going to cover things like goals, stewarding our health, and uh, stewarding our finances as well. Um, so we're going to do the class on Wednesdays and on Sundays. So we'll do two separate classes. Uh, the Wednesday class starts January 9th, and the, um, the Sunday class will start January 13th. So uh, if you're interested in that class, then sign up, talk to me. It would be really great to have you in there. We're also going to be doing some other classes throughout the year. Uh, The information's on the website. One class we're going to do is the SENT class. And a lot of the content that we're going to talk about today will be actually pulled out more in that class. Um, It's a class about mission and what God has called us to. Um, So yeah, I think that's it for announcements. Let me pray and then we'll get started. Father, I'm thankful uh, that we get to, to look at the text today, to look at your broader story. I'm thankful that we get to reflect on you and your mission and that we get to participate. I pray that you would stir us up and that you would show us how to apply these things to our life. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, as, we, as I introduce... The topic we're going to talk about today, the topic of mission, God's mission, and our role in that mission. I want to tell you a little bit about my daughter. Uh, She's a three-year-old daughter. She's really cute. And she loves going places with her mom and with her dad. She, She always wants to go in the car and go somewhere. And typically, you know, we like to take her and, uh, and drive her around and show her different things. And, uh, recently though, we've realized that when she says go somewhere, she was not content with where we were taking her. We, we would take her, we tried every, everything. We took her to the park. We took her to a friend's house. We took her to Starbucks. Not satisfied. She, we, she'd get there and she'd be, I want to go somewhere. This isn't it. She'd be frustrated. And then we started to realize, you know what? 
She actually thinks that there's a physical place called somewhere. And that somewhere along the line, we had said, we're going to take you somewhere, Eliana. And she took it literally and thought that that place was somewhere. But we could never figure out where somewhere was. So we asked her and she wouldn't give us any better clues. So one day we're driving around and we get to the intersection on 44th Street and Thomas. And um, she looks over, points out the window and says, look, it's somewhere. And we look over and sure enough, it's CVS. Uh, So she thinks the official name of CVS is somewhere. Uh, And I think that this illustrates something unique about our topic today. We're going to be talking about mission, what God's mission is and what role we can play within it. And we know that God is taking it somewhere. That God has some sort of mission and we play some sort of part. But just as my wife and I could often be confused about what somewhere meant with our daughter, we can often be confused with where God has taken us and taking his his mission. So that's what we're going to cover today. So we're going to first reflect on what God's mission is in Colossians and then kind of through the story of Scripture. And then we're going to ask the question of what is our role? And we're going to cover three mandates Uh, The stewardship mandate, the service mandate, and the speaking mandate. And what does it look like for us to live those out in our lives? So let's uh, open up our Bibles and we're going to start off in Colossians 1. And if uh, if you need a Bible, if anyone needs a Bible, just raise your hand. We've got some guys coming down and they uh, they can hand you one. So we're starting in Colossians 1, which is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Because in this short passage... It explains quite a bit about what God's mission is. So let's uh, open up our Bibles to Colossians 1, verse 16 through 20, and we can read it. It says, For by him, and that him is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to, or to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." Now, there is so much there, and it is so, such a beautiful picture. And I'm just going to make a few observations about what this teaches us about God's mission. And and the first one is that God's mission is centered on Jesus. When you read this passage, the first thing that must come to mind is that Jesus is a very big deal. The things that it says about Jesus, it says a number of things, that everything... Everything is created through him and for him. Not only was it created through him and for him, but that he holds everything together. He is the head of the church. He is the first one to be resurrected and the supreme Lord over all things. And it is his work on the cross that brings about comprehensive reconciliation and peace to a broken world. It is about his work. And as we think about what our mission is and what God's mission is, we must 
first, we can't get caught up in being and feeling guilty and anxious and what am I supposed to do? And we can't get caught up in the game of how do I change the world and, and how do I save people? Because the deal is, is that it's Jesus' mission and it's about him. He is central. And before we start reflecting on what our role is, we must be enamored with the fact that he's the one who brings it about. The second observation, the point here about Colossians, is that God's mission is cosmic in scope, and it's comprehensive in scope. You see, the the language that's used here in Colossians is very comprehensive. Five times, Paul repeats the phrase, all things. You know what the word all, all things means? It means all things. Like, it's pretty big. It's comprehensive. And he repeats it five times, and as if uh, and if we didn't quite get that he's talking about all things, he says all things in heaven and on earth. So in other words, God's mission is much more than just rescuing a soul and taking us out of, he- to, of the earth and putting us into heaven. But it's about the restoration and the reconciliation of all aspects of human life. Our physical bodies, our, the social order. About, um, it's about the earth being redeemed and extending to all nations. God's mission is broader and more comprehensive than we could ever imagine. And this passage shows us that, uh, that, that, the, that every aspect of life done in the name of Jesus is a part of bringing him glory. Because it's a part of his broader mission of reconciling all things. Now, the third observation is that the, this mission includes individuals. Um, it, it, when we, the next few verses down, uh, Colossians 1, 21 and 22, say, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing individual deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order that, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. See, we can't just look at God's mission as some general thing that God is doing to make the world a better place. But we also have to to view it as if individuals need to be reconciled to God, you and I. And that that God, um, while this is a broad mission, that we are not just merely bystanders or innocent people in need of a little bit of help. But we are actually a part of the problem. It says here that we were hostile toward God. We were alienated from him. That essentially that we were God's enemies. And before we look at mission as something that we need to go do in the world, we need to first see that it was something done for us. That when we were God's enemies, he made us his children. Not through our suffering and having to pay it off before God, but through the suffering of Christ, God's mission includes individuals. And if we want to be a part of this big and beautiful reconciliation, we ourselves must be reconciled to God. And and I love this passage in Colossians. And the two words that really pop out to me are alienation and reconciliation. And as Paul is using these words, I think what he's doing is he's He's showing us the the drama of Scripture, the fact that there's some brokenness, that there's something wrong with the world, and that there's something to make it right. And if if you look at the Bible, we've got to look at the Bible not as a 
as a collection of wise sayings and individual books, but the Bible itself is the story of God's mission and redemption. So before we dive into what our role is, I thought what we should do is we should kind of do a, a, a sprint through Scripture and reflect again and, and hear anew the drama of Scripture and how God's uh, reconciliation extends to all things. Because if there uh, is a reconciliation, there has to be uh, some, it has to be reconciling something. So let's start with creation. In the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, God created a stunning masterpiece of a world. It says that he looked at everything and he called it good. Every true, beautiful, and, and interesting thing that you have ever seen ultimately comes from the, 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 the handiwork of God, his masterpiece. He made things like crisp apples and powerful horses and oxygen and everything else we enjoy in this world. And in the middle of his masterpiece, he creates something else. He creates humans. He creates Adam and Eve. He makes them different. He makes them in his image so that they could reflect certain aspects of his, his character, his attributes. And he invites them in to uh, co-laboring with him and filling the world with all kinds of beautiful things as their beautiful lives live out before the beautiful God. When God originally made the world, it was perfect and harmonious. It's what the Bible calls shalom. All relationships were perfectly aligned like a well-woven Persian rug overlapping and intersecting in the tapestry of God's majesty. Adam and Eve would walk through this garden, a world absent of pain. They would enjoy the work of their hands. They would enjoy each other. They would enjoy God. They would enjoy everything about life. And it was good. But something tragic happened. The fall away from God and the vandalism of his shalom, of his peace, of the perfection of that garden. And it talks about that in Genesis 3. See, God gave tremendous freedom to Adam and Eve. He just said, just enjoy this great gift I have for you. Walk with me. This perfect world. But just don't eat from that tree. The one tree. And if you eat from it, you, you will surely die. And they made the foolish decision. A tragic decision. They rebelled against God. They believed the serpent. And they believed that if they would eat this fruit, that they could elevate themselves and, and be, be like God and put themselves at that level. And they rebelled. And when they took their fruit in hand... And they sunk their teeth into, into that piece of fruit. With that very bite, they essentially gave God the middle finger. And therefore, all of humanity gives God the middle finger. As the juice dripped off their chin, sin and brokenness and death began to seep into our world, into every area of life. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they took all of humanity with them out of the garden and out of the perfectly ordered world that God had made. And there was alienation. Really, at least three different types of alienation that we can see in Genesis 3. The first is a spiritual alienation. Uh, Genesis 3.8 says that Adam and Eve, after they had eaten of this fruit, they were in the garden. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking. This God that they'd had perfect, close friendship and fellowship with. Unhindered. But then they hid. 
They were in the bushes. They were hiding from God because sin alienates us from God. And then all of humanity has, has taken on Adam and, and Eve's alienation. And we are, we're all alienated. And now we take the, the very hands he gave us and the very ability he gave us. And the very world he gave us to enjoy. And we create idols. Things to worship instead of him. Further giving him the middle finger. But then there's also a social alienation. We talked about a spiritual alienation, alienation from God. But the social alienation is an alienation from each other. Adam and Eve, as soon as uh, they had eaten the fruit, they began to blame each other for what had just happened. It was the first marital spat in history. And it was the first domino in a whole line, a whole history of, of broken relationships and marriages that struggle. Right now, because of what happened in the garden, the brokenness of what happened in Genesis 3, there are men and women, husbands and wives, who are picking up pens and signing divorce papers. Because of Genesis 3, right now, someone is typing an email, a nasty email that's about to end a friendship. Because of sin and brokenness, someone is clenching a fist right now, ready to throw it at someone and hit them. Because of Genesis 3, there's someone somewhere in the world who's taken some wires and twisting them together as they make a bomb. All slander, all divided communities, all stem from this, this alienation, this social alienation. And there's also a physical alienation. Sin affected the physical world that we live in, and Adam and Eve, they felt it as they... As God, part of the curse was that work, labor would be difficult and painful, and childbirth would be difficult and painful, and pain began to seep into every aspect of our life, and the physical world goes into disarray. And now because of the brokenness, because of sin and the, the messed up world we live in, we hear about things, we turn on the TV and we hear about things like Hurricane Sandy, which decimates whole communities and scatters people's memories across an open field because of the brokenness, of the physical brokenness that comes from sin. We could go down to Banner right now, and there are many people who have to look a doctor in the eye as that doctor says, I'm so sorry, I have bad news. This fits your experience, doesn't it? Because as much beauty as there is in the world, we can feel the brokenness. And all of us have either come out of a time of pain, or in a time of pain right now, or know that our world could change in a minute with a phone call about bad news. We live in a world that needs some hope and needs some help. But here's the good news. The good news is that there is hope because God has a mission to make things right, to reverse the ugliness of the curse and to make things new again. And I could take us through, in a, probably a hundred ways through the Bible about how this, uh, I trace different themes about how God is going to make all things uh, new. But I want to focus on one theme, which would be the cries of the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah in Jesus' day, everyone was reading Isaiah because they lived in a broken and messed up world and it promised this Messiah that, that would come, who would make things right, that the government would be on his shoulders. And so I'm going to take us through a few passages in Isaiah and just try to feel and imagine what it would have been like as an Israelite as they heard these words. The first comes from 
Isaiah six or nine, six and seven. It's that it's, we often read it at Christmas, but these guys were reading it every day. It says, "For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and the increase of his government there will be no end." We, we also read encouraging words from, from Isaiah 53 that they would have heard and longed for about how the, that God's servant, his Messiah, wasn't just going to come and just kind of fix a few things, but he was going to absorb the pain and enter into the pain. Isaiah 53 verse 4 and 5 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. And they were looking. Who was this suffering servant who was going to heal us through his wounds? And finally, you know, some of them were reading words like Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Where it says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Can you imagine if you were an Israelite around Jesus' day and you were just going about your business and you went into the synagogue and you sat down and you heard this guy named Jesus open up a scroll and read these words, these words that you were constantly meditating on and longing for. And as he rolled up the scroll, like Jesus did in Luke 4, it says that this has been fulfilled in your presence today. In other words, Jesus is the one that they were longing for. And that, that the, the, the suffering servant, the Messiah that they were longing for was here. And he didn't just say a few words in a synagogue, but he lived it out. He went about healing uh, diseases and wounds and teaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God. He lived out the most perfect, beautiful, righteous life. Imagine all of the good attributes of every person you've ever met all combined in one, and it does not even come close to the brilliant life that Jesus lived out. And that perfect righteousness was lived out on our behalf so that it could become our righteousness as he absorbs our unrighteousness as he suffered on the cross. His death paid the penalty for our sins, and before God it declares not guilty. And the very humanity that rebelled against God and decided that we were going to be God's enemies, he decided, no, you are going to be my children, and I will give my very son to make it so. But Jesus didn't just die. He's just not a symbolic martyr that we look back upon and reflect upon. No, in the resurrection, Jesus showed that God's power was more powerful than death. And when he was resurrected in a new body, he showed us our ultimate future when God will resurrect us and restore all things and make all things new and all things right. This resurrection of of Jesus, we see uh, uh, it points to the ultimate day, the day when God renews and restores all things that we read about in Revelation 21. It says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This passage looks forward to the day when God's mission will be complete. When all sin and and, and pain and tears will be vanquished. When bad news will be forever locked away. And the lives that we were meant to live, overflowing with joy, without any social awkwardness, without any physical pain, where we worship God, where we enjoy the work of our hands, and that we taste every morsel of human flourishing that we were supposed to taste, but was marred by sin. We'll we'll enjoy God in that day. He will make all things right. You won't get that phone call that says, I have bad news. His mission is comprehensive. All of the alienations of Genesis 3 will be taken care of. The spiritual, the social, the physical. And we will be healed by his wounds and reconciled. And in other words, God's mission can be summed up by the Christmas song that we sing, Joy to the World. Which should, in my opinion, be sung all the time because it's so true and so beautiful. For those of us who know the gospel, like every day is Christmas, right? It says, no more let sins and and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And some of us, we experience the curse in a lot of different places, but the, the God's mission is to extend blessing to every place where there's curse. And for us, it's, we don't experience it in full now. We haven't experienced the full restoration that God will one day bring about. And part of that, I think, is because God is patient. And he is, he is giving more time for people to hear the gospel and to come and to know him. And I think another reason is that he gives us, as his people, uh, an opportunity to join him in his mission. And one day it will be complete and all things will be made right. But in the meantime, we get to participate and live lives that are a sign and, 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 and a foretaste of that ultimate restoration he'll bring. So th- that's where I'm going to turn to now. What is our mission? What is our role in God's mission? How can we join him in it? And Chris Wright defines the mission or the mission as the church is our committed participation as God's people at God's invitation and command. And in God's own mission within history of God's world for the redemption of God's creation. In other words, he invites us to join him. And I think that there are three types of, three invitations, three ways that we could join him. And I'm going to talk about these three now. And I'm, going to, I'm just going to give a little overview. And, but in February, we're going to do a broader class about all this and really help you work through uh, how to uh, put, apply these to your life. The first is the stewardship mandate. To point to God's glory by reflecting his attributes and actions in every area of life. The second is the service mandate, which is pointing to the love of God in Christ through lives of self-giving service. And the third is the speaking mandate, which is about pointing to uh, the way to God through the verbal proclamation of the gospel and the power of the Spirit. So let's start with the stewardship mandate. 
I, I define the stewardship mandate. There's a lot of scripture that talks about it, but I kind of summarize it as pointing to God's glory by reflecting his actions and attributes in every area of life. Essentially living for his glory, stewarding his world. See, the stewardship mandate is God's call upon our lives to create, to cultivate, and to draw the potential out of some aspect of God's world. Sometimes it looks like designing a website, or building a home, or growing a garden, or playing a piano, or raising a toddler. But these are all things that are part of God's world, and we get to join Him in creating and cultivating within those things. Making culture, doing things well, doing things with excellence for His glory. We're called to be stewards of His world. And reflect his authority and brilliance in the way that we work, in the way that we play, the way that we raise our families. Essentially, the stewardship mandate is what we're getting at when when we say that all of life is all for Jesus. And do we see this in the Bible? I think we see it in a number of places in the Bible where it calls us to do everything for God's glory. But the first place that we see it is in Genesis 1. The very first page of the Bible, the very first thing we learn about humans, the very first thing God tells us to do, it says that he created us in his image and he gave us this unique role, which it talks about in Genesis 1.28. It said, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the, the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God's given the, the task of, to human beings to draw the potential out of his creation. And in telling them to subdue the earth and to be fruitful and to multiply, he's essentially giving us the unique roles of, of caretakers and culture makers in his world. Now, God, think about this. God surely could have made the world fully equipped, right? He could have made the world that had tennis courts and books and omelets. Can you imagine if we were just, if Adam and Eve were created and it's like, here's a, here's an iPhone and, you know, here's, you know, here's a birthday cake and everything like that. He, but he didn't. He showed restraint and he held back and he said, I'm not going to make everything that's ever going to be a part of this world. But I'm going to invite you to create, to cultivate, to draw the potential out, to have dominion over my world as stewards. Now, a lot of us are saying, yeah, that sounds great. Um, I can make some cakes and God will probably care about that a little bit. But what does that really have to do with God's mission? Well, I, I don't think it needs any further justification. I think God's glory, doing things for God's glory, is an end in and of itself. But I do think it plays a unique role in bearing witness. Um, see, when, when we live lives with a unique depth and creativity and wisdom as we engage all domains of life, the world takes notice. They take notice when they see stunning architecture. Have you ever seen like an amazing building and then you went and looked up? Who made that? That's amazing. When they see joyful families, when they see humble yet effective politicians, no one's ever seen one of those. But if they did, it would actually, uh, it'd be pretty incredible. Maybe someone in here is going to be that person. What if they saw a ruthlessly honest salesperson or a student who's just absolutely passionate for the subject matter? Or a musician who's able to grip the soul as they put their fingers on the ivory keys of a piano. That's power. Power is when you can move uh, uh, people to tears without ever having to, to, to do anything mean to them. When you can just play the piano a little bit, right? 
my wife and I, we saw Les Mis uh, a couple days ago. And it was so well done. And it was such a good story that everyone clapped and everyone was crying. And everyone was pretending like they weren't crying. But everyone was crying because of the excellence with which it was done and the beauty of the story. And, and you know, when you see beautiful and excellent things, it, it's intriguing. As soon as I got home that, that day after, after watching the, that movie, I went and I looked up, who's the director? How can I, who, who wrote the original book? And who, I'm reading all these things about the people that are a part, of, a part of it. Well, when we steward life well, when we do things with a unique excellence, the world takes notice and they start to say, what's the deal with that person? We see that throughout history there have been believers who have this unique, uh, who uniquely take this stuff seriously and they do their work with excellence. You see people like C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien who write some of the best books that you've ever read because they know the, the creator of language and the author of life. In the, the, the leadership practice and theory world, like all the guys who write the books about leadership, they'll all point to one person and say, yeah, this guy is the main guy about, who writes about leadership. And it's Peter Drucker, a guy who loved God and who drew out insights on leadership because he knew the God who created the world and how he created human beings and ultimately the servant leadership of Jesus. I think this is what it's about. There's a unique fragrance that comes from lives that do things with excellence. And we, and oftentimes people will ask us, what's the deal with you? And we're able to point to God. We're able to say, I am loving because he is loving. I am creative because he is the ultimate creator. And we see this in a number of places. And we also see a lot of Christians who blow it, who make really bad music and uh, don't care about uh, those sorts of things, uh, don't want to steward the, the earth well. I blow it. In, in, re, in the last year, I had a real time of repentance about the poor way that I steward my health. But that doesn't show any deficiencies in God's story. It shows deficiencies in us and our inability to integrate the big, beautiful vision and his call into every aspect of our life. The cultural mandate is about living all of life. It's all for Jesus. And the second is the service mandate. So we can ask ourselves, what, where has God called us to, to steward? Now we're going to ask, what, what has, how has God called me to serve? The service mandate is about pointing to the love of God in Christ through self-giving service. See, we see this, it's pervasive throughout Scripture. And service is essentially about taking our own time and ability and resources. All the things that we use to love ourselves and obey Jesus' command to love our neighbor as ourselves. In other words, all the things we love, uh, use to love ourselves, we leverage them out for the benefit and for the good of others. We see this in, in Jesus, the very one who in Mark 10 said, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man, even Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To, to generously give of ourselves in this individualistic world is countercultural. And when we do it, we're, we're becoming living analogies. We're becoming an echo of the cross. And we point people to the one, when we give, to the one who gave himself. 
The unique way that we can show the cross is by pouring ourselves out and bearing the cross for others. And we see that the Bible talks about this. It's a pervasive theme. You see uh, things like uh, uh, different, different phrases like seek the welfare of the city, do good to all, bless others, love your neighbor, seek justice. All of these are different nuanced ways of saying pour yourself out for the sake of others. So what this looks like for us is we take stock of our life. We look at our time, at our money, uh, the, the physical spaces that we have, all these things. And we ask, how can I extend them for others? How can I pour them out for others? This may look like uh, giving your time. Perhaps if you saw a homeless person, instead of throwing a dollar out the window, maybe you take that person out to eat and you hear their story. Maybe if you are really brilliant and you have all these high scores and this high GPA and you could go make a bunch of money figuring out how to make a new pimple cream uh, as, you know, in some biomedical job. Maybe you pour yourself into the men- mental health industry, which is lacking people who are really desire to be in there. Or maybe if you're someone like me, you give a physical space because my wife and I, we've concluded that we don't have much time. And we don't have a lot of talent, so we've got a spare bedroom. And so what we've done is we've kind of named this spare bedroom in our house the Jesus Room. And we've just said, we're going to let people come and stay with us, and we're going to receive them as if we were receiving Jesus uh, into our home. And over the last couple years, we've had seven different Arab roommates, international students, who've come. And we said, we're going to be your family while you're away from your family. As John Calvin says, all the blessings we enjoy are divine deposits committed to our trust on this condition that they should be dispensed for the benefit of your neighbors. When we serve others, when we pour ourselves out for the sake of others, we show people the unique, unparalleled love of Jesus who gave himself for us. And which leads us to the third mandate, the speaking mandate which is the call to uh, point the way to God through the verbal proclamation of the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, a lot of you guys know where I'm going with this, right? Evangelism. And it makes some of us uncomfortable. But the important thing is, is that Scripture calls us to share the good news because this good gospel that we've come to know only gets transferred. It's only believed on by through, through hearing or through reading through uh, language. Romans ten fourteen says, How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have never heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? So the logic is that in order for someone to believe, they have to hear. But I understand. I understand why some of us are hesitate and cringe when we talk about evangelism. We live in a world where it's not politically correct to talk about your faith. As a matter of fact, If you have an iPhone and you ask Siri, Siri is the little software in there where you can ask questions. If you ask Siri what she believes or what her religion is, she's basically going to say something like, that's too personal of a question. How is that too personal of a question? You're a phone. You know what I mean? Uh, And of of course she has no religion because it's a phone. But the worldview, (laughs) that, that should be the right answer. But the worldview of the day is programmed into the software into our phones. And some of us don't know what to say because we feel foolish. We don't know the right words. We, yeah, we don't know what to say. And, and to you, I want to encourage you. 
I want to I say, you know what? It's not about figuring out how to get the right language and the right words to say. But I think it's more about listening. Listening to the Spirit. Listening to where the Spirit's at work in other people. And then and God, the, the Spirit, will give us the words to say in due time. When I was in Turkey, I was, I was learning the Turkish language. And I butchered that language a lot of times. There was, I actually, uh, there was a couple of weeks where I was using the verb, I was trying to say the verb to lose, but I used the verb to fart. Um, so I was telling, I was asking people, you know, who farted last night? Which, which one of these do you, do you think will fart? Uh, dang, I farted that, you know? Uh, so, and nobody would tell me because it was so too embarrassing. So I would try to, I'd try to get the pronunciation correctly. And I remember even looking in a mirror, looking at my lips, trying to make it say the, the right words. But the reality is, uh, I went to some linguistic experts who said, if you're not pronouncing things correctly, it's not about trying to, to figure out how to get your mouth to work. It's actually, you're not hearing the language correctly. So focus on hearing better and do exercises that improve your hearing of the language and then the speaking of the language will come. In the same way, I think if we're struggling to communicate the gospel, we need to hear more from the Holy Spirit. And you see throughout the book of Acts that this is how they live. They, they that the Spirit led them to certain people, to other people. It said, don't go there. And it gave them the words to say, Oftentimes, I think we misread the book of Acts because we think it's about Peter and Paul and the leaders of the church. But the real hero of Acts is the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 1.8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So often we put the emphasis on, you will be my witnesses. And I think that's good. But often we overlook the the the, where it says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And he'll give you words, and he'll help you communicate. And, you know, I can remember uh, there was one time I was at a coffee shop, and I felt like the Spirit wanted me to go up to one guy and ask, do you sit at the Sudanese table? Now, I didn't know what the Sudanese table was, but I thought, hey, we'll give it a shot. So I went up to this guy. I asked him, uh, hey, do you sit at the Su- Sudanese table? And he said, you know, I, I do. Did we meet there sometime? I said, actually, I have no idea what the Sudanese table is. And I'm going to sound like a crazy man, but I was standing in line and I was praying. And I felt like God wanted me to ask you that. So why don't you tell me uh, what the Sudanese table is and why God wants me to come talk to you? Uh, and it was a re- really good and rich conversation. But it's not always so mystical like that. One time, believe it or not, I was at a at church and there was a sermon about compassion. And we had a response time, and there was a woman sitting in the front row in a wheelchair, and the front row was scooted forward. This was a number of years ago, and she was crying her eyes out. And almost everybody in the church, myself included, walked right past her in order to take communion and do those sorts of things. But fortunately, my wife is more compassionate than I am. And when I looked around, my wife was gone, and she had her arms around her, and she was Uh, pouring herself out to her. Listening to the Holy Spirit isn't always this mystical thing, but it's just paying attention. And instead of getting so quick into speaking, listening to what God's doing in their life, because he's at work in their life ahead of us. 
we often think that we bring God to people, but the reality is God is already there at work, and he brings us to those people. Now, I think the key is with all three of these mandates. We're going to cover them in depth in the class we'll do in February, but it's really to bring them together. Stewardship to point to God's glory. Service to point to the love of Christ. And, and, and speaking to, to work with the Holy Spirit to communicate the good news into whatever setting God has called us in. And he's created us for good works, and we, we have to figure out what it looks like for us. And I'm willing to sit down with you and figure out, help you figure out what it looks like for you. But I just want to give you one hypothetical situation in closing. I want to talk about what it might look like if someone was a, gar- uh, a garbage truck driver. Now, a lot of you don't think that your, um, your work or the things that you do 9 to 5 have much value. But imagine a truck driver who was uh, a garbage truck driver who's filled with joy every day and thought that he had the most uh, purposeful job in the world because he took the stewardship mandate seriously. And as he drove around picking up trash, he knew that he was caring for God's world and taking trash and and that God's world is filled with beauty and that he's protecting that beauty as he fills his truck with trash. And he took the service mandate seriously as well because he realized that if someone didn't pick up this trash, the quality of life would be diminished. And furthermore, hospitals would be filled with sick people. And disease would be rampant as trash stacked up. So he viewed his work as a life-saving effort. And he poured himself out. He he mentored the younger drivers. He took the hardships. He was a servant. And then one day, someone comes and asks him. He said, hey, what's, uh, what's the deal? You seem to be a unique garbage truck driver. And you take this stuff really seriously. What's the deal with you? And imagine if that guy took the young co-worker to the back of the truck and he says look we live in a beautiful world that God has created but if you look in the back of our truck you'll see things that are broken that are falling apart that are decaying that once had a useful purpose but now they're falling apart and you and I know that everything happens that way we may feel strong now but one day we're going to be sitting in a hospital bed things fall apart things are messed up in the world and I believe that that's because of sin. Sin has messed up this world. Our individual sin and it's affected everything. But I believe that God has answered the problem of that by coming and walking among us. That in Jesus, this guy Jesus, he walked among the trash heap of our world. He entered in. But he didn't just enter in to relate to us. But just as that trash compactor crushes the trash, Jesus was crushed on the cross. And that through his cross, It's about reconciling all things and that we can be reconciled to God and we're going to be reconciled to God in a world uh, that will be renewed where there aren't things that fall apart, where there aren't tears. So that's why I love my job as a garbage truck driver. (laughs) And that's going to look differently for all of us. And uh, I would really encourage you to ask how God is leading you and, and what that looks like in your life. But let's remember, ultimately, it's not about us. We don't change the world. Jesus does. We do all of this under the ultimate call to love God and love our neighbors. We participate in God's mission because we love spending time with our Father. And we're captured by his vision of doing away with all tears, healing all wounds, reigning over all domains of life, and making all things right. 
and ultimately lavishing his love upon the very people who were once his enemies. Let's pray.